This is Change Agents, conversations with human rights and social justice advocates on WERU. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. Both of my guests today have worked for many years to protect and increase the rights of transgender people in Massachusetts and elsewhere, including in Maine. Jennifer Levi is a lawyer for GLAD, a nonprofit organization representing gay, lesbian, transgender, and questioning people. Jennifer is the director of GLAD's Transgender Rights Project and a nationally recognized expert on transgender legal issues. Jennifer led the legal fight against President Trump's military ban. Treandre Valentine has been the executive director of the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition for the past two years. Trey Andrew worked on transgender issues for years before being named the ED of MTPC. In addition to their extensive work in nonprofit organizations, Trey Andre brings his lived experience to their work. We will discuss the gains that transgender people have won and the rights that are still denied to transgender people. We will also discuss difficulties that transgender people face in prison and uh, and the increased rate of violence toward transgender people of color. Well, welcome to uh, the show. And Jennifer, if if you could start just by talking about uh, when when did you first uh, start realizing or being concerned about social rights or social justice issues? Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation to have this conversation um, and for that question. So um, I think about, for me, the earliest experiences of um, discrimination and thinking about the concerns of the LGBTQ community stemming from my experiences as a young person in junior high, what I guess they'd now call middle school, um, uh, at a time when I lived in South Florida, I actually lived in uh, Miami Beach at the time. And uh, Miami, what is now Miami-Dade County, was one of the very first places in the country to pass a non-discrimination law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual orientation. And it was shortly after that that there was a very energized political effort um, led visibly by Anita Bryant under a campaign called Save the Children. Um, Can I I just jump in? I I think there are people listening to this who know about Anita Bryant, but it's probably not um, yeah, the first person in uh, people who are younger. So, yeah, totally fair. So Anita Bryant was actually, I think, a former beauty pageant winner um, who was also the lead um, spokesperson for Orange Juice, uh, which was sold throughout. I mean, it was kind of you know a key product upon which the economy of Florida. Rested maybe still does, I don't know. But she had, um, you know, a lot of national visibility, tremendous amount of Florida state-based visibility. And she became the spokesperson for a campaign 
to uh, reverse the non-discrimination protections that had been passed in South Florida. And the campaign of, that she became a part of that eventually did you know, grow into very much of a reactionary nationwide effort to target the LGBTQ community for the repeal of protections and advances that had been um, made. And she, along with a number of others, created a campaign called Save the Children. And how did, how did that affect you? Yeah. So I was a student, as I said, in, in, in junior high. And, you know, I did not, I will say I was not, um, I didn't, I really didn't have visible role models, either, um, you know, trans, openly transgender people or openly uh, LGB people at that time. But I certainly was coming to my own sense of uh, what I would now call a queer identity, but I really didn't have the language at the time. And, and I, I, I felt the injury that was created in a school where teachers um, spoke out, you know, against gay people and, and what, as I said, what we would now call queer people. And it, it, was, it was really painful. It was excruciatingly painful. Um, you know, my, my family particularly, um, my father was involved in a progressive effort to preserve those non-discrimination protections. But the message to me as a young person was that it was not okay at all um, to be LGBTQ and it wasn't okay to, you know, to speak about difference. Because if you did speak out, there would be, you know, a world of pain to pay for it. And that's what was, was I, that is what I saw swirling in the community around me. So anyway, that's, I guess, a long answer to, that was my first coming to consciousness about the importance of the political work. That's um, a good answer too. And uh, Triandre, the same for, for, well, it won't be the same, but same question. Yes, uh, thank you, Steve, for uh, having me on the show and, and inviting me. Um, I think for me, it started pretty young. You know, I, I've said like ever since when I talk about myself and sort of like knowing, sort of being conscious of myself, that I've always sort of been conscious of trauma because I experienced trauma from a very young age, being in a household where violence was constantly happening. Um, and so I think growing up, um, witnessing violence and experiencing violence that, that opened me up very early to wanting to change things. Right. Um, and, and also feeling that feeling of like, I don't know where to turn. I'm, I feel helpless. I, tried reaching out, I've tried talking, nothing seems to be happening. And so um, for me, I ended up, a lot of things became internal. Um, So I, instead of sort of working outward, I started working inward Um, and uh, leading sort of the the mindset of an activist or social justice, um, framework, basically. Thank you. I, I, I find it remarkable how I think perhaps with one exception in all the shows I've done, um, the people uh, who have gone into human rights knew, even if they didn't have a name for it, um, that 
this was important um, and something they needed to do. And, um, Andre, Andre, can you um, just give a, a, a short uh, synopsis of, of so w what you did that, uh, before you, before you um, got the current position you're in now? Yes. So for uh, over a decade, I worked in the domestic violence movement, specifically um, working in uh, LGBTQ domestic violence um, and also overall general anti-violence work within specifically within trans communities. Um, I was in Oprah Red, um, which is the Massachusetts statewide LGBT domestic violence organization. Um, and I did many things there, <laughs> many, many, many hats there. I think uh, I did almost, I did, I, I would say I did everything except the executive director job <laughs> there is really what happened. And, and it really honestly opened me up to a lot of different experiences, looking at different, the ways in which, you know, not only nonprofits work, but also the ways in which, people view domestic violence, the way people view relationships, the way people view LGBT people, the way people view trans people. Um, it, it, I mean, the work is not going to lie. It is, it is exhausting because as someone who identifies um, in the LGBT community, right? Like as a trans person, not only that, as a person of color and as an immigrant, um, and also as a queer person, that it, it can be exhausting being, doing the work that you, with the identities that you hold. Yeah. Um, just as you did briefly described your, your, um, your background, the um, you you are not just facing bias, harassment, and the risk of violence from relating to being transgender, but um, because of race, because of nationality, um, uh, Jennifer, um, what was uh, you were concerned with? Uh, what was going on in Florida, um, uh, it took you at some point, and I believe, to go to law school. And, and why did you decide that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, fast forward. Um, I mean, after I graduated from college, I, I was uh, working actually in software, in the growing software industry uh, in the community, but was also a part of an effort to get a statewide gay rights law passed. And I found myself moving uh, and spending more and more time doing the work about which I was passionate at the time, which was advocacy and um, grassroots organizing and being involved in um, you know, marches and, you know, meetings and discussions to try to get laws changed. And I and was, you know, working during the day uh, for a paycheck doing work that I felt less connected to. And so I wanted to reverse the ratio of those commitments in my life. And my dream was to go to law school and become a lawyer to continue uh, and also have, you know, 
better, better and, and, and more refined skills to do the advocacy work that I was doing. And so that, that passion uh, from the political work and advocacy efforts brought me to law school. Um, and I believe you went to the University of um, uh, Chicago. I did. And yep. um, I'm just wondering, um, of all the schools that you could have come, you picked um, uh, a very rigorous and probably the most conservative of the of the top law schools. Um, yeah. Did, did they not tell you that they were conservative and you just learned on the first day? No, I, no, no, I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, I was aware of the... Um, the, the focus of the law school and both its perception and reality. And I, I'm actually, you know, I'll say that I do think it's, I mean, I, I think it's really important as a lawyer to immerse myself in the arguments and thinking of the um, other side of the work that I do. And I actually really, I mean, I always value that engagement. It's hard. I agree. I'm, I'm actually, I'd love to, I'm going to say a little more. And then, Triander, I'm really interested in, in your thoughts on, on this part. Like, it's really hard to have conversations where you learn that people don't like you, you know, or want to take away protections that are out there or have a different understanding of justice and liberty that does not include you. And those are really hard conversations to have. But I learn a lot when I have those conversations, if I can be open to them. Um, and I think it makes me a better advocate in the, the long run for really, you know, facing uh, and having those conversations. But it, I, I Treyandra, I totally hear your your piece about the exhaustion, you know, that comes with the the real engagement of the work. And I don't know, I was kind of interested in in, in your thoughts about like how you navigate some of the unbelievably challenging conversations that you've had to have across the range of work that you do. Yeah, it's, it is, uh, it's definitely been a wild journey for sure. Um, uh, and I think one of the things that sometimes we don't also talk about is some of the, you know, like we, we also come with, uh, like, especially if you're trans, you're kind of going to come with trauma, <laughs> you know, it, it, in, in this society. Um, and, and if you, with different identities that, that you hold, right, um, where uh, some identities are more valued in this society than others. Um, and that comes with discrimination, comes with violence, it comes with having to constantly sort of like insert yourself into conversations about human matter right um about about protections about rights about just existence um and constantly having those conversations is exhausting it really is when you're having to prove that you are worthy of value and you're worthy to um, of existence and you know you not only that but you're worthy uh and you have a right to to love and a right to to life and a right to ex uh to explore your potential um i mean trying to do that alone is hard enough right <laughs> but then having to have the conversations about who you are 
and really open up yourself in that way, in a way in which people almost take the seed as a right to then sort of like cut you to pieces, right? And just whittle you down just to this one thing, this one identity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, Steve, I wanted to say something real quick in response, if it's okay, to yes. what Andrew was just saying, because it, really, you know, it made me think about the fact, you know, growing up, um, I was always seen as a boy. Like that was just other people's perception of me. And I understood at that time that to be a shameful thing, you know, to be someone that was assigned female, but seen in the world as male. And when I did eventually come out as transgender and really understand more about the community of which I have had the incredible joy to be a part, you know, because of that inconsistency between my assigned sex and who, how, who and how I live, that came to, came to be and is a point of joy and pride. But I want to give, you know, there's this time where I was working, it was actually in Connecticut on the Connecticut Transgender Non-Discrimination Law. And I was, you know, behind closed doors talking to a legislator who, who, who was trying to understand um, why somebody would be out as transgender and how you could have pride in that kind of identity and experience. And she asked me, you know, very personal questions about my facial hair and why, you know, I wouldn't do something more assertively to remove that visible uh, expression of myself as a transgender person. And I had to really navigate the the shame over the years that I had overcome to the pride and the identity that I held with also working as an advocate, wanting needing and wanting to gain a vote and being vulnerable with someone who, you know, I really didn't have any reason to trust. So it's a lot to, to, to navigate across those kinds of um, vulnerabilities and anyway, joy in the community, but also the need to do the work. Well, I, I want to thank you both. We'll come back in, a, in a, about two minutes as I um, explain to people uh, who've just joined us what we're doing. Uh, you're listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice, <clears throat> Justice Advocates on WERU. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. Both of my guests today have worked for many years to protect and increase the right of transgender people in Massachusetts and elsewhere, including in Maine. Uh, we are discussing a broad range of issues uh, relating to uh, transgender, um, to the uh, success that has occurred, and also uh, what is still left to advocate on. Um, you know, I, I think if we if we had wanted to, we could stay just on the topic that the two of you just uh, it just raised because it's it's hard enough to be an advocate at any point but when it's when it's about you um, it uh, it's a whole different dynamic um, and sometimes uh, I think hurtful and I'm deeply hurtful but um, but you know it doesn't go away. Yeah. 
So what is what has changed from um, when you were in middle and high school for transgender youth and um, and uh, and now and and maybe we can focus it on on the, not the whole country because I think there's such differences, but even let's say Massachusetts. I cannot answer that because I did not grow up in Massachusetts. I grew so, up in Trinidad and Tobago. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So, so let's go I, there. You know, um, <laughs> it's a completely different country. It's, you know, third world country. <laughs> okay. So what would what would be your answer for where you came up? Um, I mean, I would say for anywhere, really, actually, Massachusetts, worldwide, globally, the internet, <laughs> that's one of, one of the things, right, um, gave us more a- access to more information. Um, but, uh, I mean, I can't really say, I mean, how things are in Trinidad right now, there's definitely a lot more people who are, are open, visibly open and out. Um uh, and uh, there are there are there are advocates in in the Caribbean. When I left, I I did not know of not one advocate, not one organization. And there is a huge Caribbean, um, a huge Caribbean network of LGBT folks, and a huge Caribbean network of trans people. Um, and that knowing that fills me up because I haven't. I haven't been able to um, travel back to my country in like 20 years. So um, knowing that when I do, things might feel a little bit different and um, I might even meet up with some, you know, other young, young trans people um, from my home country kind of just blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. But, but I, I have this sense that you knew at least, one advocate, even if you didn't know it. <laughs> but you know what? Actually, when I came here, I met, I met a trans, I met a trans woman um, who grew up in Trinidad, um, and uh, she grew up in Trinidad in, in the seventies, and talked about basically like she was the last of her friends. It was really, really bad. Like all of her friends were murdered, um, and just meeting her alone because I didn't know of any other trans people from my country. And, and just to be clear, murdered because... Because um, they were transgender, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, she was pretty much said that she was the only one who, who made it out. Um, that, and that I awful. think that it, that is something that is... That hasn't changed. Yeah. Well, that's more than deeply sad. Um, to Jennifer, if you were going to uh, compare, uh, whether it's in in high school or maybe some other point to where we are are now, has there has there been significant change? Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, it's been enormous. I mean, enormous, enormous change. Um, I was thinking. I, I was reading the uh, New York Times Sunday Magazine last weekend and they had a big spread on um, young people who had gone to a camp for transgender youth when they were in elementary school. And it was sort of catching up on 
who they were at age 18. And I was reminded of a camp that uh, was held, organized by uh, TYEF in Maine. Um, that was for young uh, transgender kids. And I was invited to join as a lawyer to do a know your rights talk. And I thought it didn't make sense to put a bunch of kids in the summer, you know, in a room and talk about laws. So I said, how about if I come and, you know, sort of act as a, as a counselor and also went with my family and had a, a then six-year-old who joined in the, you know, bunks and activities and my partner came. So we were part of the camp uh, and I was blown away by the young people's sense of who they were and their, um, you know, kind of space and place that they were looking to take in the world. And I'm, I'm so proud of them and I'm so, you know, hopeful for the future. I, I mean, the challenges are immense and remain and the barriers are just enormous. But having young people who know who they are and who are, you know, can find places to to look look for the support that they need. And I totally agree with Treyandra. I mean, the internet has changed the ability to, you know, has, has created the possibility to create those connections. So that's for me, Steve, I mean, just open out queer, proud young people is that just didn't exist that yeah. I knew of. And you the know, young people these days, they do not play. They do not play at all. Like you see them, they're or, they are organizing, um, they are fundraising, they are out there, they and they know what they want and they know what the world like the world should be like, right? Um, an inclusive world that's kind and loving and caring. And they are out there trying to make that happen. You know, I've I have spent a lot of my time working in schools to try to reduce bias, harassment, and the risk of violence um, over all of the the uh, the groups that are most challenged by bias. Um, I say in the that's past. That's how we first met, Steve. Right? That's yes. how we first met. Yeah. 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 Doing, you're doing that work. Yeah. Over the past ten years, I've seen um, the the fierceness of of the LGBTQ students is um, just just remarkable. That that they they often it's. Uh, they often are pushing and they don't get where they want to go, but, um, but it's, uh, it's really a wonder to watch. Yeah. I just want to add in to that. I mean, that really the joy and the passion is, um, uh, you know, electric. And I think that people, uh, allies, advocates, um, you know, adjacent, people are, are drawn to it because it's, it is, it's powerful and it's transformative. And, um, you know, I just want to say like the beauty and the charisma of uh, the young people who are involved in that is really, um, is, is special, really special. Um, Trey Andre on, on a, on a more, um, I'm not sure more what, but um, I'm really looking to for you to explain what is the work you're doing doing now, which I understand has cha changed over what has been happening earlier. Sure. Yeah. So maybe a little, a little bit of um, background that MTPC 
focused mostly on policy and legislative work, right? Because we had really the work was just to get basic protections for trans people um, and uh, focused a lot on um, getting statewide protections. And now that we do have those, right, Massachusetts uh, is became the 18th state to fully protect uh, trans people under the law. Um, and, and that was in 2018 when we re-secured uh, the public accommodations. Um, and can you just explain what public accommodations means? Sure, absolutely. So let me maybe, maybe backtrack a little bit. So um, we, in 2012, we, um, we got the law, an act relative to gender identity or the trans equals rights law was signed in 2012. And that basically gave non, non-discrimination protections for gender identity in the areas of employment, um, K through 12, public uh, education, um, housing, lending and credit. But it did not give protections for people uh, under uh, public accommodations protections, right? So that that basically meant that um, uh, places like you could still discriminate against a trans person in places like hotels or restaurants, medical offices, uh, public parks, public transportation, retail stores. So trans people weren't fully protected, um, and so we needed to include public accommodations so that we can we can be fully protected and that uh that work started in 2013 and in 2016 um then uh governor charlie baker signed uh signed it into law but we got there was enough opposition uh, to put it back on the ballot for the november 2018 ballot and so that became the like the work to really secure this because we knew that if this was repealed that like we it would risk everything else right um and so we really need needed to secure it and um and that took a lot of work that pretty much took up the entire the capacity of the organization um we uh it also, like we saw Massachusetts really come out and show up for trans people, um, resoundingly so. Um, and that was, I mean, that was the work of young people, right? Young people really showed up um, and, and shared their experiences. Um, uh, that was the work of parents. That was the work of um that was the work of our elders. That was the work of lawyers. That was the work of allies. That was the work of trans people. I mean, there was a, it really took everyone um, to make this happen. So now we are fully protected. And, yeah. and that doesn't mean the work is over. That To me, that means the work is just beginning. And Jennifer, uh, the work that is in process or just beginning, uh, or maybe you could even sort of back up to... Um, uh, your uh, your work on uh, uh, under Trump's reign uh, relating to um, trans people being in the military. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I mean, what Treandre was describing as happening in Massachusetts from 20, you know, 2011 to 2018 
describes um, you know that that local state-based work for transgender equality, and of course that those similar efforts have been moving forward in other states um, across the the country. And when the last administration, President Trump, came into office, some of his earliest work was about reversing um, laws and protections and policies that had been put in at the federal level by the Obama administration to ensure uh, protections for transgender people. And one of his earliest um, and most hostile uh, steps against the transgender community was his announcement in July of 2017 that transgender people would not be allowed to serve or enlist in the U.S. military. And that announcement took place uh, at a time when there were thousands of transgender people serving across the globe and um, huge numbers of transgender people who were seeking to enlist. So it was a reversal of policy that had been long studied and um, really detail, you know, greatly detailed about how transgender people could serve um, in the military. And so when that announcement was made in July 2017, I really immediately heard from a number of transgender people who worried about their families, they worried about their jobs, they worried about their safety. And um, GLAD, along with the National Center for Lesbian Rights, pretty quickly filed two lawsuits, one in uh, Washington, D.C., and one in California, seeking a halt to the ban on transgender people serving in the military. And I want to just, I want to, I'm happy to kind of give any detail about the cases, but I really want to make sure people know that that ban has been fully and completely reversed, and so that transgender people currently are allowed to um, uh, serve and enlist in the military. That was ultimately a fix that was done by the current administration, the Biden administration, but it was also the result of uh, a multi-year lawsuit on behalf of transgender people throughout the globe. And I should know this, but did, did, uh, did that go to the Supreme Court? It did not. It did not go to the Supreme Court. There were a lot of twists and turns along the way. And we were able to keep the ban from going into effect for a while. It did actually go into effect at one point. And while the cases were pending, as I said, the new administration, the Biden administration, completely reversed the ban and and allowed for open service, does allow for open service for transgender people. So, uh, there, well, I should say there were some intermediate steps actually that was that were uh, were heard and considered by the Supreme Court, but the case was never fully. Um, consider. Thank you. You are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. Both of my guests today have worked for many years to protect and increase the rights of transgender people in Massachusetts and elsewhere, including in Maine. Uh, Jennifer Levi is the lawyer for GLAD, a nonprofit organization representing gay, lesbian, transgender, and questioning people. Trey Andre Valentine has been the executive director of the Massachusetts Transgender Coalition for the past two years. Trey Andre worked on transgender issues for years before being named to be the executive director. Um, so. Say we should uh, 
I'd like to talk about what are the next issues, but there's so many of them. Um, and I, I think I would like to start with, um, does, does the bias and harassment and violence of related to transgender people fall more on people of color and particularly black people than, uh, than white people? Well, I mean, yes, absolutely. If you think about like just in general, right? If you look at statistically in general, uh, uh, people of color experience more violence, right? Uh, uh, black people experience more violence than, than, than white people. And so I would say absolutely because it is, it is not only sort of like when it comes to I'll take myself as an example. It's, it's almost, and I've heard other trans people talk about it. It's almost like you can't necessarily separate the identities, right? It's not, is it because of my, my blackness, because of my transness? Um, it's sometimes depending on, on who might be enacting the violence. It's, it's because of all of it. Um, but just if you look at statistically, historically, who has experienced discrimination, oppression, being suppressed, uh, experiencing violence, it is Black people, Indigenous people, people of color. And so when it comes to already marginalized communities, it, it just becomes that much more intense. Uh, the, the, the data that, uh, that I've seen in which we talked briefly about in an earlier conversation of murders of transgender people um, seems to be so disproportionately falling on uh, people of color. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's only increasing. I mean, I've seen uh, uh, beef in 2019. There were about 23 trans people that, that we know of, right? Because it's really about... Um, what's reported and not um, we don't always, we don't always hear of every trans person who has, who has been killed um, or they've been misgendered. Um, and so it's what we know of. And so in 2019, there were 23 trans people in 2020 that increased almost by half. There was about, uh, there were about 48 murders in the U S and right now I just heard of one of you were, we're in August, and it's already been 34 trans people who have been murdered, right? And trans, oh, trans women, trans women of color. Yeah, um, stunning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it is... I... I it is, uh, it's, it's a very, very stark reality, very stark reality. Uh, the average life expectancy of a, uh, a black transgender woman is 35. I, I think just to, to, to add to the horror of this, that just reading through year after year, what um, is put out with descriptions is that the, the level of the violence uh, 
uh, usually white men is is just atrocious. It's um, mm-hmm. and it's not only white men, right? It's also it's also black men. It's also men of color because it because I think it's also really we as a society do not talk. I mean, trans people aren't really talk of, talked about in society in general, right? And then when it comes to love and attraction and sexuality, um, there is no conversation, especially with, with cisgender men, about loving trans women and seeing trans women as women. Um, and there is this toxic masculinity um, that is also, you know, coupled with, I think that it's also coupled with the white supremacy that's meant to, that's meant to uh, keep people of color down. Um, and so when you aren't having conversations uh, uh, and there is a secrecy uh, about who you love or who you're attracted to, and there is the message that, well, first of all, that person shouldn't exist. And secondly, then that makes you a freak. That can really, you know, I think, <laughs> um, can really shake someone. And, 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 and when people sometimes don't have the language, don't have the the i think that threat people feel threatened right men cis men feel threatened and what happens when cis men feel threatened what are what are they taught to do to act out in 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 sort of like violent ways um and i think that's a very simplified <laughs> yeah very very simplified analysis um I just um, need to say, but we don't, we just, we just don't talk about, we don't talk about trans people as people to love. That's a really powerful set of words. Thank you. Um, Jennifer, does GLAD have a um, project or um, other groups that you know trying to reduce the, the violence? Well, so, you know, I want to just say a couple of things and in, in follow up. Um, and, you know, Trandra, I so, I so appreciate your insights on this because I think it is. It's, it's, just, it's so, so important and there's so multi-layer and multi-level. And I guess that's one of the things I want to draw out, which is that, you know, this, the pandemic, um, COVID pandemic has really just magnified the disparities that we see um, in communities of color and the levels of, of barriers for healthcare, healthcare access, the barriers to shelter and um, safety is, is all so demonstrated, you know, by the pandemic. And that's why I so appreciate, Trayandra, you know, you're really highlighting this, this, uh, we don't talk about, you know, transgender women and transgender people as people to love and as neighbors and family members um, and faith community, um, you know, members, and and as sort of core parts of all of our our communities. And I guess the I, I mentioned all that to to say, you know, that all of these 
uh, barriers and um, to 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 full inclusion within our, our communities and societies is is you know so important to focus on and as part of the um, the violence that we see manifested within the community. So, you know, I mean, I'll just, you know, say like, you know, it's one of the reasons why I love to partner with groups like the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition, you know, and Equality Maine, for example, or the Connecticut Trans Advocacy Coalition, because putting the pieces together um, to ensure that there is like a legal lens and a legal focus with a partnership uh, with the you know organizations like MTPC, advocacy organizations, community um, membership organizations, I think is really essential to um, changing all of the structures and the systems that lead to the kind of disparities that are you know the lived experience of too many people. Uh, well, one of the the issues I'm interested in talking about is. Uh, what is happening across the country when uh, transgender people are incarcerated? Yeah, I mean yeah. It, it's it's just got to be the, the idea of putting a, a a transgender person into um, a, a a jail that uh, that isn't what they're um, what they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll speak to that a little bit and, and certainly let Trey Andre follow up because I know he hears a lot from uh, incarcerated folks. And uh, yeah, I mean, GLAD has been involved in a number of legal efforts over the last decade, really decade plus, um, but trying to change the prison systems. And I want to just name at the outset that it is difficult to think of a justice lens to bring to um, prison systems, which I think are inhumane and unjust. And so that creates a challenge um, in, in the work. So, but having said that, you know, one of the things that we have taken on in a couple of different cases are the um, barriers to healthcare that transgender people experience in prison. We brought a case challenging uh, actually a, a policy of the Federal Bureau of Prisons that denied anybody who was um, uh, transgender and incarcerated who did not have a medical treatment plan when they were incarcerated from getting any medical care relating to their transgender health care needs. And we were able to um, uh, reverse that, that policy. It was called a freeze frame policy. It sort of froze in place the level of health care that a transgender person could receive um, in after they were incarcerated to the level that they received prior to incarceration. And of course, there's lots of people who are transgender and don't have their, uh, you know, any ability to get their medical care, their medical needs met before they're incarcerated. So that was a really important first step. Um, and then we've continued to work towards uh, challenging, uh, you know, prison policies that deny appropriate medical treatment to transgender people, including hormones, including, you know, access to gender appropriate care, including um, surgeries as well. It's been a, a, you know, it will, it continues to be a struggle and a long-term struggle, but those are cases that we continue to work on. And then more recently, we did represent a transgender woman who, as you said, as you were framing out, Steve, was housed in a men's correctional facility and faced 
uh, incredibly, you know, was incredibly vulnerable, faced um, sexual harassment by other uh, residents, but also by um, the the corrections officers, others within the prison system. And we did, we were eventually successful in getting her transferred to the Women's Correctional Facility in Massachusetts. She was the first, but fortunately not the last transgender woman to be able to be transferred. But that work is is ongoing and, and really, as I said, challenging to do justice work within um, unjust systems. And Triandra, I know you hear a lot from so, uh, trans women who are incarcerated, so I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Too. And just um, you know, that we are moving toward the end of this. I know it, it yeah. feels like it goes fast. So, um, But Triandra, what, what do you see in here? Well, for me, it's more so the... I mean, what, what I am seeing and I am here is very similar to what Jennifer was talking about, right? Um, people being denied medical care, um, people being denied um, uh, even like, you know, medical care, including including uh, mental health care, right? Um, there was a report that came out, I believe it was, was it last year that came out about the, the Massachusetts Department of Corrections where a transgender man died by suicide while under mental health watch. Um, and, and I mean, I just want to say, I mean, the Department of Corrections in general, I, it is inhumane, right? They, they, inhumane practices, uh, inhumane culture, um, and, and so when they're not seeing, when they don't see, when they just see people as prisoners, because that's what, they're, that's what they call them. They call them prisoners. They see them as prisoners. They see them as numbers. Don't see them as people. Um, that there is sort of this lack of extension of humanity to folks who are in pain. Um, and the other thing I sort of want to bring to light is that a lot of trans people are incarcerated. It's, it's, it's sort of like this, this sort of like school to prison pipeline, right? That happens. Um, it, it is... It's not a solution to any of society's problems at all. Well, it, it, it may be even worse than that, that it creates the problems. Absolutely. Absolutely creates problems. So as we're moving toward uh, the end of this discussion, I, I wonder if each of you could talk about um, what it is, assuming that you have some optimism, um, what is it? And maybe um, uh, a, a short example. And so you each have about two and a half minutes to, to just give us a sense of, is there a reason to be op optimistic either? And if you want to have a, a small, Antidote, that's fine too. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, I sort of like, I have, it's almost like I have 
I have nothing but to be optimistic, right? If I'm not optimistic, if I don't have hope, what else is there? <laughs> um, and I see it. I see it all the time. I see it. I see it in young people all the time. The young people that 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 I work with, the young people that I come in contact with. Um, I see it. I also see it with elders. I mean, I'm just going to talk for me. What gives me hope is is the fact that my mother, who came from a third world country, who is you know extremely religious, um, and uh, and you know like has said you know like previously that I'm going to go to hell because you know because of my lifestyle, right? Has on her 67th birthday said that she is proud of me and loves me and um, thinks that I am a, an, an amazing person and that she has, that she is so comfortable with me because I am so comfortable with myself. And that's a, a beautiful way to... People can change and people can grow. Thank you. Jennifer. Yeah, I love that. People can change and people can grow. And I'll just two real quick things, I guess, that give me hope and optimism. And one is, you know, I remember talking to a client um, who was a a plaintiff in the transgender military, challenge to the transgender military ban. And this is a transgender guy who was a medic who had to call me in the middle of the night. He was serving, um, I think it was actually in like Kandahar and called me at two in the morning to give me some updates about his uh, experiences. And really his focus was like, I got to get back to my work. There are people who are injured. I need to, um, you know, be ready and present to, to, you know, provide care for the, you know, the, the people that, that I'm, I'm serving. And I just like, I thought, wow, the contributions that transgender people have to make in this world is enormous. And we need to clear the way to let that happen. You know, just get rid of the barriers that's keeping people who are unbelievably competent from making those contributions. And my other quick story is, you know, Nicole Maines, who I represented in in Maine in a case that went to the high court establishing transgender young people, young people's ability to use all facilities in schools, including restrooms, ended up being the first transgender superhero, you know, on on a Supergirl. And I thought, you go, you know, you can do everything. And, and we're all so fortunate that the more we can uh, uh, allow and support transgender people to thrive and uh, uh, contribute all that, that people have to give, the better off we all are. And that gives me hope. Um, thank you for this conversation. And uh, uh, now in, in my list of superheroes, I've just added two. Um, You've been listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. We have been discussing the issues affecting transgender people. My guests have been Jennifer Levi, a lawyer at GLAD, the Gay, Lesbian, Advocates and Defenders. Jennifer is the director of GLAD's Transgender Rights Project and a nationally recognized expert on transgender legal issues. Jennifer led the legal fight against President Trump's military ban. And Andre Valentine has been the executive director of the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition for the past four years, two years, excuse me. 
Andrew worked on transgender issues for years before being named to his current position. In addition to their extensive work in nonprofit organizations, Andre brings his lived experience to their work. You have been listening to Change Agents on WERU-FM on the first Thursday of every month and on the WERU. You also can listen to Change Agents at any time on WERU at 89.9 FM and streaming on WERU, WERU.org. And thank you so much to my guests.